It's an honor to share this moment with you on this Good Friday. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. I want to tell you ahead of time that uh, I started this morning and I have had a cough and it's gotten increasingly bad throughout the day. I tested me just before I came here, so I do not have COVID. That's the good news. But uh, I do have something. That's why I'm wearing a mask and keep a distance and all that kind of stuff. So if I cough a little bit in this message, just ignore it and we'll get through it somehow. All right. I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 46, one of the most paradoxical, strangest, most puzzling statements in the entire Bible. Because Jesus is hanging on the cross. It says, in about three o'clock, his breasts are almost gone now. This is among his last things he's going to say. But he cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's puzzling. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God incarnate. The Gospels present him that way. The Epistles present him that way. And yet here we have Jesus, the one who is the embodiment of Yahweh, the very incarnation of God. He's crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing forsakenness. What's up with that? God is experiencing God-forsakenness. You know, maybe we've heard it enough and it doesn't shock us anymore, but that's pretty crazy. That's pretty, the Trinity is hard enough to get your mind around, but now we have the Trinity and there's some kind of experience of alienation or separation within the Godhead. That's mind-boggling. One of the things I know for sure is that it's, it's things like this that convince me that the Gospels are rooted in history. If the gospel authors were trying to fabricate a story about Jesus, why they would do that, well, we don't know. But if they're going to fabricate a story, if it's not true, it's got to be fabricated. And so if they're going to fabricate it, this is the kind of thing that they certainly wouldn't make up. It's, it's, it's amazing it's in there. It doesn't help their story at all. They're trying to present Jesus as the Messiah, and he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that, the only motive they could possibly have for keeping that in their gospel is that that's how it actually went down. Jesus actually cried out, said those words, and they're interested in reporting the truth. So lock it in, the Gospels are reliable. But this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it is, yes, it's the most puzzling and, 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 and uh, paradoxical statement in the Bible, arguably, but it's also, I think, one of the most profound, one of the most profound revelations uh, we've ever received from heaven. Because it means this, see, sin... Sin is pushing God away. You can just define sin that way. When we want to go our own way and not go God's way, we just push God away. And so sin carries with it. It's intrinsic to sin that it brings about separation from God, alienation from God. It's, it's intrinsic to it. Now, God in his mercy stays in the game and keeps pursuing us like the hound from heaven. But there could come a time when, when, when God, if God sees that he's just enabling us to continue in our rebellious ways, there's a time where God has to say, okay, I'll grant you your wish. You want to push me away? I'll be pushed away. And that is what the Bible presents as the judgment of God. God doesn't get violent or ferocious or anything. He just says, with a grieving heart, I've got to let you go. Read Romans 1. I've got to turn you over to, to that which you've chosen. And so Jesus, he bears the sin of the world. And in bearing the sin of the world, he bears the alienation of the world, which is the consequence of sin. 
He suffers what is the judgment of God. Not that the father's angry with him or abusing him or anything like that. But the father, this is part of the plan, turns him over to suffer the consequences of the God-alienating, God-forsaken sin of the entire world. And so, and see, see what's most profound about this is that it shows, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It represents the furthest extreme that God could have possibly in all eternity gone for us. And the extremity, the unsurpassable extremity that he was willing to go on our behalf, even becoming our sin and becoming our curse, it shows the unsurpassable perfection of the love that God is and the love that God has for us. Praise God. But that became clear only after Easter. We're on Good Friday. And, and, and uh, before we can appreciate the light of Easter, we need to appreciate the darkness of Good Friday. In fact, I think this should be called Dark Friday rather than Good Friday. Um, but but it, 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 it's, we need to appreciate just how dark it was when Jesus hung on the cross. So consider for a moment what Jesus endured on the cross. You know, when something that is contrary to our nature happens to us, we call it pain. If, if someone is preventing you from breathing, in about 15 seconds you begin to experience a panic and a, and a unique kind of exquisite pain because it's in your nature to breathe and when you can't do what's natural to you, you experience this pain. If I get a cut on my arm where there's not supposed to be a cut, it's unnatural and so I experience pain. Well, Jesus, just on a physical level, experienced some of the worst pain that is imaginable for human beings. Because it's not natural for him to, it's not natural for anyone to have their back flogged so bad that it gets deformed. But that happened to Jesus. And it's not natural to have long thorns being probed into your skull, but that's what happened with Jesus. It's not natural to have spikes being pierced through your wrists and through your ankles, but that's what happened with Jesus. It's not natural to suffocate, to not be able to breathe, but that's what happened with Jesus. That's usually how people who were crucified died. You had to pull yourself up just to get a breath. With spikes going through your, your, your wrist, you had to pull yourself up to get a breath and then sink down again. In time, you just don't, you, rigor mortis sets in uh, and you can't pull yourself up. So you suffocate under your own weight and it's a slow, slow, torturous process. So just on a physical level, all, all this unnaturalness is happening to Jesus and it's got to be exquisitely painful. But I believe that what he experienced on a spiritual level was incomparably worse than that, if we could imagine that. Because here, the all-holy Son of God is going to now bear the sin of the world. He's going to get on the inside of our sin. And because he's getting on the inside of our sin, the, the, the Son of God, who is always in, perfectly united to the Father in spirit and love, because he's now going to get on the inside of our sin, our alienation, he's going to experience separation from God. Nothing could be more unnatural to God than that. It goes completely against God's nature, and so nothing could possibly be more painful than that. I don't think there could be a greater pain in all the universe than God experiencing his own antithesis, and yet that is what God was willing to do for us. And the depth of God's pain, the unsurpassable depth of God's pain, on our behalf, out of love for us to redeem us and rescue the creation, the unsurpassable depth of that pain reveals the unsurpassable perfection of God's love. God's love, the, God, the love that God is, and the love that God has for us. But again, that's not clear on, 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 until after Easter, and this is Good Friday. 
And on Good Friday, there's only the darkness. There's only the alienation. There's only the cry. There's only the confusion. That's what Good Friday represents. That's why when Jesus was being crucified for three hours, the Gospels tell us it got dark. And that it was a kind of physical representation of a spiritual reality that this was the darkest moment in history. This looked like the victory of the powers over the Son of God as he is dying on the cross. And everyone who followed Jesus participated in this darkness, experienced this, the absence of God. That's what it is. Jesus has experienced this absence of God. And this whole time here, his mother and his disciples are going to be experiencing the absence of God. Think for a moment about Mary. <coughs> what was Mary thinking when she was looking at her son dying on this cross? And, and Jesus had told all of them that, that, that he was going to be raised from the dead, but it went in one ear and out the other. I'll talk about that on Easter. Uh, but it, it just didn't register. It was too contrary to what they were expecting. And so she's looking at her son, and she thinks this is the end. And she's got to be wondering, God, what about this super— I, I conceived of him supernaturally. How could he not be the, the, the Messiah? What about the promises that the angel gave me? What about the song that I was inspired to sing in the book of Luke, the Mary's Magnificat? Such wonderful truths she espouses about how he's going to bring the high low and the low high and change the world and all the rest. But now here he is dying on this cross. And she's got to be feeling God forsaken. Like, the, like the butt of some kind of cosmic joke, giving all these promises and then to have it end this way. And I suspect his disciples wouldn't have fared much better. They put all their eggs in this basket. They all their hope in, 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 in Jesus. And he, man, he seemed like he had the credentials. He seemed like he was the real deal. The miracles that he did, the teachings that he had, the, the character that he displayed, the authority that he taught with, how could he not be the Messiah? And yet here he is, dying on a cross, a God-forsaken death. It's all darkness. It's all confusion. Jesus enters into the inside of our forsakenness, the alienation that accompanies all sin. So much on the inside that he completely identifies with it. To the point where, at least for this moment, under the weight of sin and under the weight of the, 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 the alienation from God, he forgets, as it were, the, the divine plan. That this is why he came into this world, to suffer this death. Right now, all he can do is scream out, he's forsaken. He's abandoned by God. That's what he feels. I see, getting on the inside of our abandonment, our sense of alienation because of our sin, well, he's, he's, he's getting on the inside of forsakenness of human beings throughout history. He wasn't the first one to experience God forsakenness. In fact, this is a, a, a dominant theme in the Old Testament, the hiddenness of God. God turns his face away. Uh, his presence is no longer with us. His protection is no longer with us. You have this all the time. And people cry out, where are you? For example, I'll just read one, one, one verse here, Psalm 44. The author says, rouse yourself, wake up, God. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Don't cast us out forever. Why are you casting us off? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For we sink down to the dust and our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. God, are you sleeping on the job or what? We have this covenant. You're supposed to be protecting us. You're supposed to be caring for us. You're supposed to be walking with us. But here we are. We're being oppressed. We're being slain. And you're not doing anything about it. What are you, sleeping? Rescue us in your steadfast love. And this is what you find throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, but it's really prominent in the Old Testament. 
where on the one hand, the people express a confidence in the goodness of God, in the faithfulness of God, the steadfast love of God. They believe in that. At the same time, they're completely honest with the fact that sometimes their lives don't match that truth. And sometimes God doesn't look all good, doesn't look all loving. Sometimes he looks like he's falling asleep on the job. And they're not afraid to say that. They express that. They hold that intention. Yeah, God's all good, but man, it's like we live in a Good Friday world and, and, and sometimes there's just darkness. Sometimes there's just questions. Sometimes there's just pain. The New Testament describes the whole world as kind of a Good Friday world, a world that's enveloped in darkness. The New Testament describes this world as being oppressed and ruled by the Satan, uh, the adversary of God. And Paul describes this whole epic that we're in as being a dark age, a present darkness. It's darkness. And the entire creation groans for the redemption of the children of God. Because right now there are clouds that block out the sun, as it were, and keep the goodness of God and the beauty of God from being self-evident in this world. You look at this world, you see a lot of beauty, but you look at this world, you see a whole lot that's ugly, a whole lot that's not of God. And the goodness of God is not unambiguous. And so you find even in the New Testament, as much as in the Old Testament, people crying out, how long, Lord, before you avenge our blood? The martyrs cry out in the book of Revelation. Um, how long before your justice is apparent in this world? We know that you're just. We believe that you're just, but we don't see it. What we see is a lot of injustice, and you're not doing a thing about it. We live in a Good Friday world. And the truth is that we still live in a Good Friday world, which is all the more puzzling and all the more painful because this is after the resurrection. And we know that the resurrection, as we'll celebrate in a few days here, the resurrection was a time when the, the powers were in principle defeated. And this creation was in principle liberated, and yet we live in a world that doesn't manifest that truth. Not consistently. So people still experience the absence of God. The void of God. I, I don't think anyone expressed this absence of God more powerfully than Eli Wiesel. Uh, he is a, uh, a, a Jew who went through the Holocaust, he, he writes about it in his book called Night. Uh, it's a most, one of the most haunting books ever written. Real thin thing. I would recommend you read it at some point, but recommend it, uh, read it at a time when you're going to be okay being depressed for a while because it's a very depressing book. But he just describes what life was like in the concentration camps, in Auschwitz in particular. And he describes how he lost his faith in Auschwitz because the God that he always had believed in did not intervene to redeem his people like he allegedly had done back in Exodus when he delivered them out of Pharaoh. And so there's one scene he describes where uh, there's, there's, they were forced on a regular basis, all the prisoners were forced to come out into the courtyard and watch executions. And the Nazis would execute any of the prisoners for doing anything wrong. And on this particular day, there's three people being executed. Two grown men and one 13-year-old boy. A boy that Eli Wiesel describes as just lovely, a beautiful person, personality. But he was a part of this plot, apparently, to, to free some Jews from Auschwitz or to break out. And so he was going to be hung. And the chairs are pushed and the bodies fall. And the first two guys die fairly quickly because they're heavy. The young boy, because he's light to start with and now he's famished being in this concentration camp, the weight isn't sufficient not only not to break his neck, but even to choke off all the air. And so he's struggling to breathe. And this goes on for a long time. Here's what Eli Wiesel writes. He goes, where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. For more than half an hour, the child in the noose stayed there, struggling between life and death. 
dying in slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look him full in the face. The Nazis forced the prisoners to stare at the people being executed. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red. His eyes were not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallow. Where is God? He's right there. Now, as a Christian, I could interpret that to mean, oh, God's on the inside of this boy's pain. He's experiencing the nightmare from the inside. But that's not what Eli Vesel means. What he's saying is the process of watching this young boy slowly suffocate, hanging from this, with this noose, that was the process of seeing my faith die. My faith in God died when that boy died. Where is God? Well, he's dying right now. He finally could no longer believe in a God who would allow such atrocities to, to happen. Uh, he's, he's saying that in light of such atrocious evil as this, unthinkable evil as this, the only thing you could say is that this is the absence of God. This is the absence of all that's good. This is the absence of all that's decent, all that's right, all that's humane in the world. There's nothing good here. This is all evil. So this is the absence of God. That's what it is to be experiencing a, having a, a Good Friday experience. We're living in a Good Friday world. Multitudes of people are experiencing a Good Friday moment right now. It feels like the absence of God. We all know what's going on in the Ukraine with innocent civilians being bombed at train stations and shot in the streets. And it's just unthinkable evil. And Mariupol, this whole, this whole city, once it's a glorious, wonderful city, is now being choked to death. And you see this grotesque evil. And I said, God, how long are you going to let this go on? I mean, if you look at Ukraine and some of the bombed out parts of it, it's a very definition of hell. The absence of God. Where are you, God? A, a war you maybe have not heard quite as much about is, is what's going on in Ethiopia. It's been going on for over 10 years, I think like 14 years, the civil war, these warring tribes. And it's just unthinkable, the, the grotesqueness of what's going on there. Now, they've got nothing that we want, so we don't get a, they don't get on the news, but it's just um, over a half a million people in the last 14 years have been killed by this ongoing war. And one of the most ugly, unthinkable things about this war is that on both sides, rape is being used as a strategy of war, systematically. It's just unthinkable. It's, it's just so gross. 200,000 killed by the fighting. Another 200,000 have, 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 have uh, starved to death, and then 100,000 have died just of diseases because there's, no there's no medical help there. That's Good Friday. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? But you don't need a war or even a major cataclysm to sometimes feel the absence of God. Sometimes it just comes to you. I mean, I'm sure some of us have wondered at some points in our life, God, where are you? Why didn't you show up? Why didn't you stop this? We've wondered that. In fact, maybe in the last three years, a lot of us have been thinking that about the world in general, given the pandemic, this never-ending pandemic, and, 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 and given the uh, polarization of the country in America here uh, on political lines, and given the, the ongoing racial injustices and racial tension, and, and, and now with the looming threat of World War III, a lot of people would say, man, this feels like a God-forsaken world. And I totally relate to what they're saying. But it can happen on a big scale. It can happen on a personal scale. For me, one of the most painful, sharpest times when I felt the absence of God happened to me in, in, when I was over in Cambodia. 
25 years ago, I guess. And, and we were uh, on a medical missions team sent from, from Woodland Hills to the Vietnamese in, in Cambodia. And the Vietnamese are illegal immigrants in Cambodia, which is a third world country. So these people are at the very bottom of the pecking order, okay? There's as bottom as you can get on this planet. They were as poor as poor can be. It was just terrible. We stayed there for a week, and during this week that we were helping them with checking out for lice and teeth issues and eye issues, you know, we just kind of do medical stuff. While we're doing that, I, I really bonded with this one young lady there, a nine-year-old girl named, named, named Mai. And, and uh, oh, she's just this beautiful character and, and just lit up the room and had this smile that was just incredible. And, and we, we, we couldn't talk each other's language, but we found ways to communicate, and we really bonded during this week. The thing about Mai, however, is that her legs didn't work. Her legs didn't have any bones in them. It was some kind of weird disease. And um, so she's bound to this wheelchair in this shack village that they don't have any concrete for roads. They just have dirt. And there's bumps. And it's, she's in a wheelchair in this dive city, this little shack village. And one of the wheels on her chair didn't work. And so she needed somebody to transport her wherever she wanted to go. And a number of times that I would just watch her playing with kids, I'd see her left behind and my heart would just break for her. And I'd go down there and become her chauffeur. The last day that we were there, I got a note from Mai, and when the translator translated it, it said, uh, first was Pastor Boyd, thank you, and blah, 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 and your team, it's been wonderful, and all that. And then she said, will you take me home with you? Because I hear that there's doctors in the United States that can uh, heal my legs, and I want to be able to play like all the other kids. And I went to Trin Tranberg, who's the head of our team, I said, is there any way that we can make that happen? And she says, Greg, there's, first of all, her condition, modern medicine doesn't have a thing, to, it couldn't, has nothing to offer her. It's beyond modern medicine, so it wouldn't do any good anyways. But uh, th these are people who don't exist. They don't have papers. They don't have birth certificates. They don't have anything. Uh, and, and so th they can't interact with our travel systems and our financial systems or whatever. There's, there's nothing we can do here. But we had just then, the night before, had this talk, and we all got excited talking about it at home. We wanted to incorporate more prayer as we're doing the checkups and stuff. I was encouraging Wynn along these lines, like you know, praying for, 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 for folks who have got some disabilities and stuff, instead of just looking at it from a medical perspective. Because in, in, in an impoverished village like this, one miracle could convert the whole town. I mean, these folks were all Buddhism. There's a few Christians, a little kind of Christian church here, and that's where we were working with. But on the whole, they were, they were Buddhist. But if one miracle, I mean, these folks will follow any God that will help alleviate some of their misery. And we're thinking, man, we just got to believe to see God do a miracle here to convert this town and on and on. So we were you know, getting excited about this. Well, the next morning, here comes mine and says, will you fix my legs? And we explained to her that doctors, there's nothing doctors can do to fix her legs. And, and we're not able to take her over to, back to America anyways. We did give her a consolation prize and that was she got a working wheelchair. But um, we had to say, and, and it just broke my heart as she starts crying when she heard that the doctors can't fix her. But we said, but you know what? We believe in Jesus and we believe in healing and healing power. And so we want to pray that God would heal you so you can play with the other kids. And, and I was actually, for a moment, excited about, I had a sense that this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Just like we talked about last night. And so we prayed for my, and I have never left, I, I, I left nothing back. I poured myself out. 20 minutes or so, just pouring myself out. And we all did that. We're just praying, interceding, come, God, heal her, heal her. Nothing. Nothing. Cashing all my chips. And there's no discernible improvement that I could see.
Now, here's the thing. I can theologically explain that. I can, you know, you've heard me do this, the variables and uh, free will and ripple effects. And, and I, but my theology, I, I can account for the Holocaust, all right? If I couldn't, then I wouldn't be a believer. But see, it's one thing to have an explanation. It's another thing to experience this. And as I'm watching this young girl lose hope, it's like, come on, God, come on. Break a rule if you have to. Screw the ripple effects. But you come down here like you did in the old New Testament times. And you gave us these promises that we're going to do greater works than, 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 than you did. And, and that we can pray for the sick and they'll be healed and all the rest. And this is what we get. Disappointment doesn't begin to describe the condition of my heart. And I, I will be honest with you. I've always promised to be honest with you that I, I still limp from that event. I still limp from that event. I, I, I pray. I still pray. I pray passionately. I pray with faith, which means I envision the person being healed. But I no longer let myself expect it because it hurts so badly. It doesn't happen. Um, it's, come on, God. We have moments like this where it just seems, it's not just that you don't feel God's presence. You feel his absence. You're supposed to be here and you're not. That's Good Friday. Have you had a Good Friday moment? You know what I'm talking about. A time when it's just, it's just dark. It just seems like you're at the bottom. You can't see God anywhere. Maybe it was the loss of your child, the loss of a, of, of, of a parent or a spouse, a friend, a sibling. Perhaps it was when your marriage failed. Perhaps it's when you finally realized that your life isn't going to be the dream that you thought it was. Maybe it's when the doctor said you've got cancer or you've got some other kind of t- terminal disease. Maybe it's when the doctor said, sorry, there's nothing we can do about your chronic pain. Maybe it was when you fell back for the 10th time to your drug addiction or your alcohol addiction or your porn addiction or your opiate addiction. It, 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 just, it just come to the end. However it happens, we live in a Good Friday world in which there's so much suffering, so much pain, so much ambiguity. We don't clearly see, don't unambiguously see the goodness of God, the love of God, the justice of God. And we know that light will overcome the darkness on Easter morning, but this is Good Friday, not Easter. And before we appreciate the light, you have to appreciate the darkness. So I'm going to just close with two things about living in this Good Friday world here. Two, two words for us. One is, you know, Jesus was honest about what he was experiencing. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, he was honest with God, as the biblical authors are. Now, it didn't sound very pious. It certainly didn't look very holy. It didn't sound beautiful. In fact, it sounds ugly, and it sounds very, very confusing. It certainly isn't a very convenient thing to say. If, if, if part of the goal is to present Jesus as the Lord incarnate, having him say, why have you forsaken me, doesn't really help sell, does it? There's a lot of reasons why Jesus should have kept his, kept his mouth shut, but he blurts it out. And see, in blurting this out and speaking this truth, He's really modeling for us what an authentic relationship with God looks like. Because an authentic relationship with God is always ruthlessly honest. And that's a little trademark you find throughout the Bible. Job, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these people, when, when they, they say some nasty things about God. <laughs> right alongside good things they say about God. That's that tension I was talking about. But there, uh, Jesus is modeling what it is to have an authentic relationship. And he's displaying just how thoroughly he identifies with us in our sin and in our God-forsakenness. And so when we are going through a Good Friday moment in this Good Friday world, we've got to know that it's so important to speak the truth, to name it, 
Sometimes when we're going through the nightmares, it can be tempting to just try to deny it. La, 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 it's not happening. Or to try to minimize it. I'm fine. I'll get over this. This is a little hiccup. Try to hide it from others because you don't want to be making people miserable. We're tempted to do that, but that's what we must never do. It's so important that in the darkness, you embrace the darkness. Not in an affirmative way, like it's a good thing, but you just own it. This is what it is. Let it be as ugly and as painful and as screwed up and as twisted and as jaded and as disoriented as it is. Just let it be that. Just let it be that. Name it. Because see, and, and, and then give yourself permission to grieve this and to lament this and just to be there. Because the only way through this is through this. And when we minimize it and hide it and pretend well, we, we, just, we just delay the pain. It comes out in other ways. Name it. Give yourself permission to grieve it. And then secondly, you know, Eli, if you saw, he heard the guy say, where is God? And he thought, well, God's up there on the gallows. And he meant my faith in God is dying up there on the gallows. But see, as Christians, we can see a, a more profound truth than he was capable of seeing. When, when someone asks us, where is God? Our instinct should be to point to another guy who was dying by suffocation. That's Jesus. And we say, there is God. You see, here he is feeling God forsaken, but there is God. In that God forsakenness, God is there. And God's not only on the inside of Jesus' experience of God forsakenness, Jesus is God experiencing God forsakenness, and he's experiencing this God forsakenness out of love and solidarity with us in our forsakenness. So we can know that God is, in fact, on the inside on the inside of all the God-forsaken pain of this world, and the nightmares of this world, and the tragedies on the, this world, God is on the inside of it, experiencing it from the inside. I don't know if I could believe in God if I didn't believe that. If God was up there, some spectator just watching all this misery, I feel like I'd have a moral obligation not to believe in him. But what the cross tells us is that God's not some objective observer just looking down on us. He's on the inside out of his perfect love for us. He's on the inside of whatever we go through. And so in this Good Friday world, when we're going through Good Friday dark nightmares experiences, you've got to know that you are not alone. You are not alone. Uh, you may feel forsaken. You may feel completely abandoned. You may not see your faith in God may be rocked, but you are not alone. However low you sink, look down. God is holding you up. Uh, however dark it is, just know that God is there. Just, just know that. You don't have to feel it. You don't have to sense it. You don't have anything. And maybe what you're feeling is the opposite of that. But know that he's there. God is in the God forsakenness. And if God's in your God forsakenness, then that means you are not forsaken. God, God doesn't forsake people. We're the ones who push him away. So however dark it is, know that God is there. And see, this is not yet Easter. We're not celebrating the victory over anything. But just knowing this provides a kind of a comfort. It means this. It means, I mean, it provides a kind of a comfort. You're not alone. But also means that it won't always be like this. Now, Easter's still coming. But just knowing that it won't always be like this, well, that is, can empower you to go through this. Be real. Be real with what you're dealing with like Jesus was. And know that God is with you. However terrible it is, the darkest moment, even if it's your own doing, your own fault, you're super, super guilty, you screwed it up, you hurt a bunch of people, God is still there. He'll never leave you or forsake you.